Just a couple of announcements before uh, we jump back into the Gospel of John. This week is will be Christmas week coming up, and so this Saturday is our annual Christmas Eve candlelight communion service, and that's at 7 o'clock in here. And so I hope that if you haven't made that part of your family's routine, and you can do so, it's a really, really intimate, special time, and it just we quietly come in, it's very reverent, uh, do some Christmas songs, last about 35, 40 minutes, uh, have a short message, take communion, and then we leave, and it's just a really good time. So I hope you'll join us on, uh, on Saturday night. And then Sunday morning is Christmas Day, and Sunday morning is church, same time, 1030. It will only last about 45 minutes as well. And so uh, we encourage you, it'll be two separate sermons, going to continue in John uh, during both of those times. And so I hope you'll make that part of your routine to join us in those. And then also tonight is our monthly hymn sing, and tonight's the Christmas edition at Willow Ridge. And so that's at six o'clock at Willow Ridge, which is on Faceable Highway. And so I hope you'll maybe join us there and be part of that to encourage people and also just sing some Christmas carols together. It's a good time. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the book of John. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ. And God, we know that it's very, very easy to go through the day and be extremely distracted or just busy and forget who we are and why we're here. And God, thank you for just uh, the wisdom of your plan to gather your church together on a regular basis so we can remind each other and look into your word and spur each other on for love and good deeds. And God, I pray that you will allow us today to just open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit as you work in our lives. God, I pray that you will allow your word to, to go out in power and that we will receive it and act upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Growing up in the church from a very, very young age, my dad and mom came to faith when I was about five years old. They were adults. And you begin to attend church every week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And maybe like many of your experiences growing up, I can honestly say that I saw a lot of evil even within the church. I know that's a bold statement. I saw a lot of evil because truthfully, I never saw any exorcisms, right? We never cast out any demons. I never saw a demon. Never put my hand on a Ouija board and had it spell out Satan or anything like that. Never levitated or saw anybody levitate. So how in the world did I observe evil within the church? Well, I saw a lot of pride. I saw a lot of people who this family said on this side of the church, that family said on that side of the church, they would never make eye contact. They would never talk to each other. They wouldn't forgive each other for things that had happened in their past. I saw a lot of power plays. I saw business meetings that went forever into the night. I saw deacon meetings that my dad would come home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and uh, honestly, you know, I, I, I was worried that for his safety at times, and maybe the safety of the other people too. And, and, and so it was, I observed a lot of crazy, crazy things. Deception, had Sunday school teachers who had affairs, ran off, abandoned their wives. I had a pastor uh, honestly, this is no joke, his name was Crummy, Charles Crummy, and he was arrested, and I, I won't go into detail, I've shared that story before with kids in here, but he was arrested, and the church, even though he admitted to doing something at minimum very, very crazy and stupid and reckless, the church as a whole stood up and said, we, our faith hasn't wavered in you in one, one bit, 
we're totally confident in you. And he continued on ministry there within our church. And there was all these battles that went on. And honestly, truthfully, that may surprise you, but it really should not surprise you, okay? Because we have to be honest with ourselves that there is evil within us, that even as Christians, we must acknowledge our battle with remaining sin that still exists. I love reading New Morning Mercies, and I know many of you read it. A few days ago, Paul Tripp wrote this. He said, sin seduces us into thinking we are somehow, some way smarter than God. Sin causes us all to trust in our own wisdom. Sin makes us all want to write our own rules. Sin makes us resistant to criticism and change. Sin makes our eyes and hearts wander. And so doing what's right isn't natural for us. Scripture clearly says and consistently says that we have to battle against our flesh and this indwelling sin that still exists. But it also warns us that we have a real and true adversary the devil, and his primary strategy is to destroy our lives and destroy the testimony and the reputation of his church. That's what Satan wants to do. He couldn't destroy Jesus, and so he, he wants to do the next best thing to destroy his bride, the church. And so scripture teaches us that Satan has the ability to put thoughts into our minds, even into the minds of unbelievers, of believers. In back, way back in First Chronicles, Satan incited David to do evil. He, it says in, in chapter 21, verse 1, that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to, ready for this? Ready for this evil that Satan had him do? Number Israel. Okay? He, he, of all things, can you imagine that he incited him to take a census, to number Israel? What's the backstory in that? Don't have time to explain it. Go and look it up. But basically, it was a thing of pride for David. He began to look at his own reputation, his own pedigree, rather than keep his eyes on God. So Satan's strategy was to get him to put his confidence in his own resources rather than God's resources. And so the Apostle John has already told us here in chapter 13 that the devil had placed an idea into the mind of Judas. He put an idea in Judas's head, and he tells us today that Satan actually entered into Judas. And so Judas is going to be in the full grip of Satan. How can this happen? Good question is how can it happen? It could have happened to us. Could it happen to you? So as we look at John 13 verses 18 through 30, let's learn from this text so that we can be a church who's alert to the schemes and the strategies of Satan. And so we're not deterred by infighting and allowing Satan to be in our midst, inside of us, to get the best of us and, and get us to be deterred from God's will. So John chapter 13, and let's pick up in verse 10, because Jesus has given his disciples three warnings up to this point that there's a traitor among their, their ranks within them. And now this is the fourth warning if we go back to verse 10. Jesus said to them, The one who is bathed does not need to be washed except for his feet, but is completely clean. And all of you are clean. He's talking to his 12 disciples. All of you are clean except for one of you. So he says, there's one of you among us who is not clean. So the fourth time that he's warned them that there's a betrayer in their midst, and they still don't get it. They still don't recognize that Judas is this person. 
We know, we know the story. Even if you don't know the full story, you've heard us talking, you know the name Judas. You know that people don't name their kid Judas because it's synonymous with a betrayer. And so we know, but the disciples don't yet know. They don't have a clue because Judas has fit in so well among the 12. And then again in verse 18, let's actually start back with verse 17. Jesus says, if you know these things, all these things that he shared with them, blessed are you if you do them. And then verse 18, and I I am not speaking of all of you. So again, he gives them another warning. He says, my instructions that I've given you here for blessing, so you can have blessing, it's not for every one of you. There's so many in this room, it's not for. Why? Verse 18 again, I know whom I have chosen, Jesus says, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus had chosen Judas as one of his disciples, and he also chose Judas as his betrayer. Why did Jesus choose Judas? It says, so the scripture would be fulfilled. He's referring back to Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, written hundreds of years ago, before even, before even Judas was even born, he, that this was written by David, and it predicted that Jesus would be betrayed. And the scripture can't be broken. And in fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, Peter points to Judas and says this, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. They had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, that psalm we just read, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And so predicted long before in the Psalms, Judas would betray Jesus. This was no surprise to Jesus. And Jesus did not make a mistake when he picked Judas to be in his inner circle. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he knew who he was choosing. But we need to balance this out, because some of you may be sitting here saying, that doesn't seem right that Jesus would choose Judas as his betrayer. Judas cannot blame the devil or God or anyone for his actions. He was in no way coerced to do these actions. He was completely and totally responsible for what he did. In fact, Judas admitted this as himself. We have it recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 4, where Judas says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I have sinned. He acknowledges it. I've sinned. I took the action. I did this. Fulfilled the prophecy. Jesus chose him. You have to be okay with that tension. Jesus knows that Judas' impending, or that, I'm sorry, his impending arrest and crucifixion is going to catch all the other disciples off guard. They're going to be shocked by this. They're not going to know what's happening, even though he's prepared them again and again. And that's why he says in verse 19, he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it takes place, that you will believe that I am he. You see, the very thing that Jesus uses for his demise is to build the confidence that the fact that his disciples need to recognize he's fully in control. He's completely in control. Jesus is in control. And so he needs them to understand this because they're getting ready to launch the most incredible mission ever seen by man. 
the mission to uh, the, the mission to evangelize the world, to preach the name of Jesus, to take it to every corner of the world that they could in their lifetime, and now to ours. The mission, the Great Commission. And so Jesus had a big job for each of them. That's what he alludes to. It may feel like in verse 20, he's kind of skipped to a different subject, but it fits right in. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. So when I'm sending you out there, it's the same as receiving me. And whoever receives me, Jesus says, receives the Father, receives the one who sent me. And so what he's saying is, I've got a big job for every one of you, not just the one here who I've chosen to betray me. I've got a huge job for each one of you. You're going to represent me. And we're going to see more of this later. We won't uh, really talk about this at length, but the point Jesus is making, he's preparing them for what's about to happen. He's preparing them for the future, and he's going to send them out to represent him. And when Judas stabs them and Jesus in the back through his betrayal, it should not be something shocking to them. He's let them know multiple times. But sadly, and as we've seen, disciples aren't always the quickest. And, and, and it's, again, it's, it's hard for us to know and put ourselves in the situation what they were feeling because Judas, we know him to be synonymous for being a traitor, yet they did not get it. They didn't understand it. So look what he says in verse 21. Jesus has to get his, their attention. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you right here will betray me. So as Johnny mentioned about the class this morning and talking about the emotions of Jesus, Jesus gets emotional here. He's distraught. We've seen this throughout the book of John, that Jesus is emotional, and Jesus reacts strongly. And he's reacting emotionally and strongly in this situation because they're not getting it. He's saying, one of you, he's, he's truly, truly means pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. One of you will betray me. Because probably the disciples were thinking, that the betrayer, the person he's been pointing out, is somebody on the peripheral. You know, Jesus had his intimate disciples, his 12, but there are others who followed Jesus. So I'm sure in their mind, they thought, it's got to be somebody else. Somebody who's not in this room, somebody who's a disciple. We can get that. We can comprehend that. But he says, look, and he's troubled. He's distraught. It's, it's one of you in this room. But Judas had so hidden his heart that when Jesus told the disciples one was a betrayer, it was still not obvious to them that he was speaking about Judas. Judas did a great job being a con, did he not? And there are people within the church community who are bent to do evil and destruction because they don't know Jesus. You may not consider yourself to be a Judas, but you may just come to church out of convenience or your spouse drags you here or the kids need a good role model, they need to be taught things or various reasons that you're here, but in reality that you're truly not a follower of Jesus. And scripture warns that the message of Jesus is a stumbling block and it appears foolish to the world. And so maybe you're even sitting here saying, you know what? I just don't fully buy into this whole Jesus, salvation, eternal life heaven and hell thing. I just, I don't really buy it. It seems kind of foolish to me. Don't be surprised. We're warned that it's a stumbling block and it's foolish. And in fact, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians remind us that the God of this age 
which is Satan the devil, has blinded the minds, blinded the eyes spiritually of people so that they will not see the glories of God. So we should not be surprised that there are people similar to Judas who go through the motions, and it's no wonder that oftentimes church, which is Jesus saying to us, you're going to represent me. When you go out, people should look at you and see me. You're my bride. You're my body. You're my people. You're the ones I'm sending to do mission. Yet we look and we see that the church oftentimes does an awful job of that. Yes, there's carnal believers. There's people who are not tracking with Jesus. But you know what? There's false people in the room. There's people who are pretending that aren't truly believers. And the ultimate reality question really revolves around your view of God and my view of God. Who is God? Who is God? Do you believe that he truly exists? And is he caring? Is he, a, is he in control? Is he sovereign? Or do you just believe, eh, there may be somebody out there? You know, the original lie in the Garden of Eden really shows you the nature of all of Satan's lies. He wants us to doubt God's generous goodness. And so some of your doubting is just the fact that you don't really think that God exists or that God really isn't good. And you look at your life and your history and the things that have happened as evidence to the fact that God's not good or generous. So whose view of God do you believe? Do you believe Jesus's view of God or do you believe Satan's view of God? Because the first question in history was asked by Satan when he said, has God, has he really said this? Because Satan wants you to doubt God in his goodness. And he's trying to convince you to question God and then, get this, begin to build a case for your righteousness even as you choose to do what he says not to do. Because rarely do we, those of us who are in the church world, just defy God and say, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. What we do is we rename our sins by words that maybe make us feel a little bit better about them. And then we commit them because we build a case that it's okay. It's, it's not that bad. And so we begin to question God, question his goodness, and we think, like Adam and Eve, that we, can, we should do what we want to do. In fact, God told Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. All right, so God says, have freedom, enjoy everything that I've given to you, Here's one prohibition to protect you. I love the way Robert Kellerman says this. He says, Satan sidesteps, eludes, and ultimately ignores God's generous benevolence and twists his one, let's emphasize that, his one prohibition, a protective prohibition meant to teach God dependence and intended to spare us from the consequences of self-sufficiency. So, Satan says, let's focus in on the one thing that you can't have and not all the numerous things that God has given you in his goodness and his blessing. That's what Satan does. Those are the tactics of Satan. It's the guy that, again, back in my past in college, 
uh, I went to a Christian college, right? Of all places, you would think the people who were there as our leaders and as our guides would be pointing us to God and following Jesus and love for the church. But the, uh, actually the head basketball coach at our college, very, very um, conservative Christian college, by the way, I, I was talking to him in the gym. I, was, I worked in the gym, and he, he told me one day, he's like, you know, I, I just I can't do the church thing on Sunday. I like to go out on my boat. That's where I find God, on my boat. That's where, that's where I just really, really commune with God. And he's telling this to an impressionable college student, all right? So you may think, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, I really do encounter God in my deer stand or in my boat. I really, really find God in nature. But what does God say? He says, don't forsake the gathering together, all right? And so you see, he's accepted a counterfeit church, him alone in his boat, him and God, as a counterfeit for community, for being together with the body of Christ, And so that's the way Satan works. God says, the church, look, look, the church is here to protect you. We'll talk more about this at the end. The church is here to protect you. Relationships are here to help you when you take your eyes off Jesus and begin to put them on the things of this world and begin to say, you know what, that looks pretty good. The things that God says should not look good, that look evil. And Satan disguises those and convinces you that those things are what you need. And so the natural man always rebels against God. And we need one another because our flesh is never willingly going to submit to God's rules. And if you insist on trying to force your flesh through some human manipulation or me and God in a boat together, apart from his will, to some way harness your flesh, you're going to be super disappointed in what happens as a result of that. And that's why Paul was adamant in Romans chapter 7 that he could not conquer sin through his own efforts. No matter how much effort he made, he was going to fail because the flesh cannot be harnessed. Trying to reform the flesh, it's a waste of time. It's hopeless. The only appropriate action to take for the fleshly nature is to put it completely to death by the Holy Spirit's power through the word of God and through his commands, the simple obedience to his word. And so as long as you're trying to deal with the things that are a little bit obvious in your life, you know, I just can't let people see that or notice that, or I can't allow that behavior to come out during my church, with my church family or say those things. What we're doing is like what I did with one of my crepe myrtles that was growing up in my yard that I didn't want there. Those things just reproduce so easily, and you let them go for a little while, and pretty soon, every time you go to mow, you got a little tree there, right? And you just like mow it over, and it's, it's you had to hit it a few times because these things are pretty tough. But I got sick of it. Every time I would come back to mow, I would mow it over, and I could never get all of it. So finally, one day, I said, I just got to go out, and I just got to get rid of the root, all right? I just got to get rid of this thing. It's only this tall, right? I, how, how deep does that go, really? I mean, and I start digging, and I'm amazed at like, how deep the root went on this thing, how, how difficult it was to dig this thing up. And that's the way it is with sin in your heart. You've got to go to the root. You've got to go down to what is causing or where your, your actions and your behaviors are coming out of. Jesus said, he said, out of your heart flows all these things. So it's not like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was sort of racist, but I'm not a racist. It sounded racist, but I'm not a racist. It's like, go to the heart. Maybe there's more there. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? 
or, or I, I, did, I should have slandered that person, but I'm not, that's not me, that's not who I am. Why did you say it? Why do we say the things that we say? Because they come from the heart. And as long as we try to harness the heart through behavior modification, you understand what I'm saying? Behavior modification, just cut off the surfacey stuff. It's just going to keep coming back because the heart hasn't changed. And so Judas here in our passage, his heart was just evil. And now he had opened it up to Satan, and Satan moved in. Let's keep reading. The disciples looked at one another, verse 22, uncertain of whom Jesus was speaking about. They're not sure. Who's he talking about? Then one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table. That's the way that they would have done it with the Greek culture influence. They would have been reclining at the table, and he was there at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And so the disciple whom Jesus loved, most people believe that was John, the author of our book, the Apostle John, and he used the expression, kind of be anonymous, but he loved Jesus. Jesus loved him. They had a very special relationship. And then you got Peter, who normally, he, he's never hesitant, right, to say what he's thinking. We don't know what's, why he's restrained here, but he tells John, he motions to John, kind of gives John, ask Jesus who he's talking about. And so even though John asked Jesus directly concerning the identity of the betrayer, the disciples, they remain certain, uncertain of who Jesus had in mind, and it could be because when he responded to, when Jesus responded to John, he did so privately. He didn't say to everyone, but look at verse 26. Jesus answered, he either said this to John or he said it to everyone, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And we talked about this before, but I love how John includes Simon's father in this because it makes Judas a real person. You know, we're not talking about just some historical figure who, you know, personified evil and we can just, you know, that's, that's just, that's evil there. But you know, this, is a, this is a guy who had a dad and had a mom and had brothers and sisters. And this is a guy who went with Jesus everywhere Jesus went for two or three years. And in fact, dipping the morsel and passing it on to Judas was a sign in their custom, in their, in their culture, was a sign of special friendship. And so not only was Judas going to betray Jesus with his awful deed, but he's betraying this intimate, close relationship, this friendship, so to speak, that he had with Jesus, at least what appeared from those looking on that he had this close relationship with Jesus. And so here, the day before Jesus' death, as Jesus is enjoying this Passover meal with his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who's been stealing from Jesus, from stealing from the offerings, and plotting for some time against Jesus, pretending to be Jesus' friend, now he's going to respond with just pure evil. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. John's already told us that the devil had put the idea in his head, but now he goes to a different level that Satan actually possessed him or took over his body at some level. And keep in mind that Satan entered Judas as opposed to the other disciples. So what's different about Judas? I mean, Peter, we know Peter 
was reckless and he revealed his weakness of character because he was always doing crazy and saying stupid things. And he also is going to deny Jesus. So we know Peter's not perfect. Why didn't Satan enter into Peter? Or what about the, the other disciples who were full of pride? Who's, who, we want to be the greatest, Jesus. We want to be on your right and on your left. And, and they had this pride about them. How about them or, or Thomas? Thomas is going to doubt Jesus. He's going to question Jesus. His faith is weak. Why did uh, Satan not enter into Thomas? Satan was able to enter to Ju- into Judas because Judas was available. Judas was available. He did not have authentic faith. He was not a true believer. He was not a true follower of Jesus. He had not trusted Jesus. The Holy Spirit was not there to guard his heart and protect his heart. So Satan, when he opened it up and he began the scheme, then Satan could take over and accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. And so Judas followed Jesus for several years. And never gave his heart to Jesus. Look at verse 27 again, the second part. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said that to him. So, again, maybe only John knew what Jesus had said, it appears, because they're still not really understanding what's going on here. They had spent the last three years with this guy, working with him, doing ministry together. In fact, he was the group's treasurer. He's the one that collected the money, like I said. And so there's no doubt that they placed him in a high level of trust. They had confidence in him. We're going to let you hang on to the money. Look, we see that in verse 29 and 30. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas had a plan, but it wasn't one that he devised on his own. During supper, verse 2 again said that the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. So Satan had a plan that was going on. And when it came to Jesus, Satan had one goal, and that was to destroy Jesus at all costs. Ephesians chapter 6, particularly verses 11 and 12, give us as believers, as Christians, a heads up to the fact that the devil is scheming against us personally. The devil is scheming against us personally. He's strategically seeking a way to get a stronghold in your life and in my life so he can harm the name of Jesus, hurt the cause of Jesus. He could not touch Jesus. Jesus was completely in control, but he can come after us, his bride, his people, and destroy our testimony. And so just as God has a holy plan that he executes by his sovereign grace in your life, the enemy has an unholy plan which he's looking to execute in your life and destroy your life, and he operates in a very systematic fashion. And he knows our weaknesses. I'm I'm convinced that he knows our weaknesses. He knows the areas where you struggle and where you're most vulnerable. And he's going to attack you there. Mentally, he's going to attack you there. Maybe physically, he can attack you there. He did Job with God's permission. But Satan knows what he's doing. But here's the thing, as I alluded to from the beginning, this won't be just obviously evil stuff. In fact, I love how David Pallison says it. He says, Scripture 
treats spiritual warfare as a normal, everyday part of the Christian life, and so we should as well. It's not about spooky special effects. It's about how we think, feel, live, desire, and act in the presence of our enemies. The ultimate question that runs through everyone's life and through the whole Bible is, who will be your shepherd? Will you be shepherded by your good heavenly father or by the liar and murderer, Satan? So who's your shepherd? It may not be the obvious conclusion that you come to in your mind as we've talked about this story, what really the, the, the big takeaway I want you to take away is on for your head, for your intellect today is, but here it is. I mentioned it earlier. Jesus is fully in control. Jesus had the power. He had the control. He was not a victim in this situation. And so we need to realize that Satan doesn't, does not and cannot harm you apart from God's sovereign plan and will. And your trust and your faith in him that Jesus is in control. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. I'll say more about that in a second. The heart application. I want us to remember this. I, I, it was no accident that John ends this narrative with, and it was night, because if you know your Bible very well, you know that the book of 1 John in particular, written by the Apostle John, he used the metaphor, the picture of light and darkness constantly. To him, it's, it's just a metaphor that he loves. And so, so he put that there as Judas walked out into the night. And it's a good reminder for us. Will we embrace the light or we, will we choose one day to walk out into the darkness? It's really a heart check thing right here is, is where is your heart? Where's your heart at? Not the behavior, not the stuff that's sticking up above the ground that we can see, because we know from Judas that can be deceptive, and it's easy to fool people. It's what's underneath. What things are you doing or telling yourself in order to either live a double life or to just entertain and embrace sin in your life? You're playing a, a very dangerous game, and I could, I've seen numerous people sitting in pews week after week that eventually just turned and embraced their sin and said, I want what I can't have. I want what God says I can't have. And they shipwrecked their life, to use the scriptural word. They destroyed their life because they were unwilling to trust God in his provision. So Satan will put into your head and he will feed you this lie that you deserve it. You, you must have this. You have to have this. And it's something that's not compatible with your faith. That's what it is. It's something that God says no, but Scripture says we love the darkness. Our natural state, we love the darkness. And so what is it in your life that Satan's saying, you have to have this. You need this. At this stage in your life, this is the way that you need to operate because you, there's no other choice for you. This is what brings satisfaction and fullness. And it's the thing that said, God says, no. Look around at the beauty and the joy and the goodness that is found in trusting me and my protective provision for you. But scripture, John told us back in chapter three, people love darkness 
rather than light because their works are evil. We love the darkness because our works are evil. We want the things that we want. And so the root cause of walking out into the darkness isn't the absence of light. It's a love for the darkness. It's not an absence of the light. The light is there. God is revealing himself. He's shown himself that like Judas, he loved the darkness. So the hands application to come back to what I said earlier, I'm just going to read you two verses as our application for takeaway from Hebrews chapter 3. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened, here we are, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why people abandon their faith. is isn't usually for intellectual reasons. It's usually not for, you know, I just can't believe God exists anymore. Typically, it's, it's for the deceitfulness of sin hardens your heart, and so you abandon God. But he says, just embrace one another, help one another, encourage one another, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Unless you think that holding your original confidence firm to the end is all about you and your willpower and your grit. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, the author tells us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he's the founder of your faith. He's the one that started it in the beginning, and he's the perfecter of your faith. He's the one that's going to see you through to the end. So sin and Satan is deceptive. And he tells you what's wrong is right, and it even looks pretty good to you. It doesn't look that evil to you. And that's why we need the body of Christ. We need to be in a fight club and relationships through key groups where somebody can, can speak to you and you don't get mad because they say, hey, I really see a pattern in your life that is, I'm, I'm concerned about. And instead of being defensive and saying, get on my business, who do you think you are? Hey, babe, let's go find another church. We don't like these jerks, man. What are they doing in our life? We say, please speak to me. I need it because sin is deceitful and it hardens my heart. And I need intentionally intrusive friendships in my life to help me see the sin that most of the time I'm blind to. That's what we need, that humility where we can be that open with the body of Christ so we can be spurred along and encouraged. Most people don't want to receive that. It doesn't feel good. It hits at our pride. But we look to Jesus and we accept the grace that he gives us through his church, through his body, through his hands and feet. And we can be aware of the schemes of the devil Trust Jesus is greater, stronger, and he's got a plan. And we can live for that without falling to the tricks of the devil. Let's pray. Father God, we know that the devil is seeking to devour us. Your word says, like a roaring lion, he prowls about, trying to de destroy our church, destroy our lives, destroy our testimony destroy our marriages, destroy our children. And God, I pray you'll help us to cling to Jesus, the author and finisher. Help us to run to Christian community. God, help us to move way beyond just church attendance and help us to open our hearts and lives to the body of Christ, to the one another's to spur each other on for love and good deeds. God, I pray that you'll help those who are playing games, even in community, they're playing games, they're pretending, they're putting on a fake front and they've got people fooled, God, convict them. 
If they don't know you, I pray they'll run to the light. And God, I pray that before it's too late, that your, your, your spirit will convict them of what's going on, and they will turn to you and humbly cry out to you to save their soul. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. I thank you that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And help us to cling to your truth today and forever. In Jesus' name.